Hi, I'm Helen and this is Why Mums Don't Jump. Busting taboos about leaks and lumps after childbirth. All the stuff that happens to your pelvic floor that no one ever talks about. Incontinence, prolapse, pelvic pain, problems that affect millions of women. One in three. I'm one of them. I have a prolapse. My pelvic organs fell out of place after the birth of my second child. And if you had told me back then that I would be speaking about this stuff out loud, I would have told you to give your head a wobble. Hi, welcome back. Spring is finally in the area in Manchester. That's making me happy. It's uh, taking its time. Uh, and another thing that's making me smile is that I am still receiving and very much appreciating all your lovely feedback about the podcast and, of course, about the book available now. Um, I can't remember if I told you this, but I found it on the shelf in Waterstones the other day, which was really quite a moment. I'd sort of forgotten that that was going to happen. Um, but yeah, anyway, your messages are wonderful and reassuring, so please do keep them coming. And if you've read the book and you liked it, then please do drop a little review on Amazon uh, because it really helps others to find it. Today's episode is a good one. I would say that. Um, so this is a conversation or part of a conversation with a urogynecologist. And my thinking is that I want to give you a lot of information about what might happen if you go to see one. So what happens in an appointment, the sorts of treatments or surgical procedures that might be available, and just some good and clear information about something I think can seem very complex, confusing, and uh, a bit scary, to be honest, maybe, sometimes. So this this is Dr. Charlotte Marnie. She's uh, not scary. She's a consultant urogynecologist at St. Mary's Hospital in Manchester. I actually found myself in her office last year, and she's lovely. And I asked her to be on the podcast. This is going to be in two parts, as I say, because I want it to be useful and as comprehensive as possible, but I don't want to overwhelm so in this half, you're going to hear us talking about a few things. You'll hear us uh, talking about mesh, where we're at with it, about uh, what happens during an assessment if you go to see or get referred to your urogynecologist, what treatments and surgeries are available for stress incontinence, which is where you leak if you cough, uh, sneeze or laugh or jump or whatever, um, and the importance of physiotherapy is part of all that. And then in the other half, next week, uh, you'll hear us talking about treatments for overactive bladder, which includes urging continence, which is where you just have to go right now and you can't control it. Uh, we'll look at surgeries for prolapse as well and how to get the most out of, let's face it, your long-awaited appointment. Um, I would say listen to both of these episodes there is some crossover. It will just make more sense that way. Um, so yeah, let's crack on. First question, what is a urogynecologist? So one of my bosses makes this joke that we're a bit of urology, we're a bit of gyne, we're a bit of ology, so colorectal, and we're a bit of orgy, so we do a bit <laughs> of sex as well. But we, in, we're confusing in other countries. So in the States and Canada, we're called uh, pelvic medicine or female pelvic health surgeons okay. specifically reconstructive surgeons so that's kind of the idea is we restore the female pelvic health through surgery or otherwise we trained as gynecologists but then we do some urology as well so some gynecologists can do a bit of urogyne um so they can do the prolapse as well as the bladder stuff mm -hmm. but urologists will just do the bladder 
they won't do if you've got any prolapse issues or any bowel issues at the same time, whereas we tend to try and do it all in one if we can. Okay. Or we call in our phone a friend to come and help if it's a bit more complex so is is the i guess there's not one right person that you should be seeing then it will depend on the individual or maybe what's available in the area yeah very much so depends on you what's wrong with you what your symptoms are and then what's available in your area so and that's particularly true for kind of bladder problems at the moment in the uk um because of kind of pausing mesh Lots of urologists and gynecologists stop being able to do incontinence operations. So then suddenly there's only a few of us, urogynecologists and urologists, who can. So it's very much depending on your postcode as to who's available to do what in your area. And that's because, and we'll, and maybe we'll explore this a tiny bit, but mm. um, when mesh was being, the synthetic mesh was being used yeah. it was being used by lots of different um different experts different, different yeah, specialties different doctors different, different doctors and different specialisms yeah. and now that's not it's really only the urogynecologists who can do the other kinds of surgeries is that yeah okay so years like back in the 90s before the mesh tapes were introduced it was the urogynecologists some gynecologists and urologists and we could do these kind of more old school, in inverted commas, if you like, operations. And then they invented the mesh tape. And at the time, the data said that it was safer and better for women, shorter Mm. operation, worked better. Um, Because of that, it meant everybody adopted it. And so all of that surgical skill of those more, those bigger operations was then just left to a small few for women Mm. who were quite complicated. And so the problem is now those small few are trying to train everybody else and get through the massive backlog post-pandemic, NHS and all of that, which is why there's such a kind of issue as well for women across the whole of the UK in terms of accessing stuff. Yeah. And we'll, we'll we'll try and get through in a minute, like some of the kinds of options, not just mm. surgeries, but things that people yeah. might see urogynecologists for and what that journey might look for. But I guess while we're just talking about mesh, let's just give people a sense of uh, what it is that we're talking about. Because I know like it's one of those things, I think, um, for anyone who's got pelvic floor problems and you hear all, all the kind of horror stories of, of women who've been left with complications, mm. it's worth just kind of... Um, outlining where we're at with it so um it's on pause at the moment and has been for several years hasn't it yeah so it's been on pause for quite a long time um there's a big baroness cumberledge report and she's reviewed it all and said that based on her evidence she thinks it might be acceptable to restart in very few select cases of women and in very specific centers probably the centers that take mesh out in the first place like we do in manchester because there you have an understanding of the level of harm it can produce so you can give women appropriate counseling about what they're expect you know what they're putting themselves at risk of um but as part of that rule she also said we need to have a national database for these implants and nhs england and the government are still uh, how do i put this uh in discussions with one another about this database so none Mm. of us are doing mesh and that's just off the table but equally out of the women I see in clinic certainly I've not had anyone in a good few years be even interested and ask about mesh no Um, well I mean I think it's put the fear of God into loads of people because you know uh, I guess as you say these were operations that were done in good faith with the you know and for for some women they worked but for many women they have these uh, complications where the mesh has eroded in their bodies and 
just it, life changing yeah, disabilities like off the back of it and that's it and it, we don't know the exact number because yeah. we didn't have a register in the first yeah. place but even if the number was one in a million does it matter it's yeah. a quality of life operation and the complication from that is you've ruined their quality of life and that woman might not have had that operation as a result so I think the worst travesty of the whole thing is that women when they went to their health professionals whether it's the GP the you know, the hospital doctor, whoever, and said, I'm having problems. They were told they were, you know, it was all in the head and they were kind of sent away. And I think that's part of where, understandably, the anger comes from, and rightly so, you know, yes. and, and that lack of trust. Because you could probably forgive us trying to act in their best interest, but what you can't forgive is that, same, to, same as in the 1900s when women were told they were hysterical and they were having heavy periods, you know, it was it's just a repeat of that and it's just awful that we're no further on. Um, and so, yeah, that's why there's still a pause on mesh. Um, and I think there probably will be for quite a while. Yeah. So that's mesh. And that's that's kind of where we're at with, uh, that's where it leaves us today with some different surgical options. Yeah. So let's rewind a little bit and imagine that someone's got their first appointment in your office. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is this journey going to look like for them? So for me, when they come, first thing we do before I even see them is the height and weight because that influences treatment options. Um, we test the urine and make sure they've not got any urine infections or anything like that. And then I get them to do a questionnaire generally if they can online because it gives us a really good marker of their symptoms if we do do any procedures then we can compare how well it worked for them then they'll come in I run through a few basic background questions then I talk about the crux of the problem so whether that's bladder symptoms prolapse symptoms or bowel symptoms then I examine them so examine the tummy examine them in the vagina I get them to push down as hard as they can on the couch try and make any lump or bulge they can feel as big as they can because it's hardly the most realistic environment. So you kind of want to give the body the chance to sort of really show you how it is for the woman when she's out in everyday life. And I always tell my ladies, don't worry if you leak on the couch. You know, it's the one room in the whole world. We're really happy if that happens, (laughs) weirdly, (laughs) because it's part of the examination. And to us, that's normal. You know, Mm -hmm. generally speaking, if you've not got a lump or bulge or you're not leaking, you're in the wrong clinic, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's to try and to part, for me, part of the process is always trying to normalize it a little bit that it's okay this is just a part of health you know and there's nothing to be embarrassed about Mm -hmm. um and then once we've done that we talk about what's what's going on really um so there are when we think about bladder symptoms and leaking urine there are for me there are kind of two different conditions um one is leaking urine when you laugh cough run my favorite question is you know if I put you on a trampoline, would you leak? And, and most people who have that condition go, God, no, 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 I'm not going on one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you get the face of horror. Um, and that we treat because it's the muscles and the kind of the connective tissue down there that's weak. So we treat that by making that area stronger. So that's with physiotherapy, the pelvic floor exercises where you contract and pull everything up. And that's what those electronic pants people keep buying online are for. Mm-hmm. And then if that doesn't work, there's kind of devices. So um, a bit like kind of like a hollow tampon that you can put in and get on prescription from your GP. And that kind of provides some support to your water pipe and stops you leaking. Which is which is an incontinence pessary, right? Yes, that, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and they come in different shapes and sizes. I tend to find they're really good for women who maybe only leak when they go running or go to the gym and you just want to use it occasionally. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then all the way through to if that doesn't work, then we can do procedures or surgery. So if you come to see me after physio and you don't really feel the devices are for you, and it's, it's a personal choice, right? I, I'm not you. I do quality of life surgery or quality of life interventions. So it's very much I give you the relevant options that would work in your situation and then you pick and choose what you feel would then be best for you. Because the other thing Mm -hmm. is what you might choose now might be different to what you would choose in 10 years' time because your children are older, your lifestyle is different. And that's why it's so important to leave it up to you and what you want, you know. So... Once you've done the physio, the next thing we need to do is some bladder tests usually before you haven't we even think about an operation because I need to check you've not got another bladder condition going on and you're emptying your bladder okay. Because if you're emptying normally, then that's great. But if you're having problems emptying, it, it alters our chat around the risks for any surgery you might choose. Once we've done those, you'd come back and see me and then we'd talk through the options. So really there were three options for women with stress incontinence. So that's leaking urine with kind of the physical activity side, as in Mm -hmm. you put your body under physical stress, you leak. Um, So the first one is bulking and it's where we put a kind of, it's a bit like collagen injections, you know, a bit like people have in the face. But (laughs) we've had a laugh about this before, yeah. It's similar-ish sort of material, it's a hydrogel, but... They, you put a camera in through your water pipe, your urethra, and then you do a couple of injections of this stuff into the into the muscle, the sphincter that kind mm-hmm. of sits around your water pipe and holds it all in to bulk it out. Basically, it does what it says on the tin, and then the idea is that kind of stops you from leaking. Mm-hmm. So some places do that under anaesthetic, but a lot of us have now moved to doing that under local anaesth- local anaesthetic and in clinic. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the nice thing about it is there's no general anaesthetic, so it's pretty safe. Especially if you're not very fit and well, you know, it's only 30 minutes, come to clinic, we do it, you go home again. Um, the risk for it is really, really low. So the chances of having any problems emptying the bladder afterwards are really small. Mm-hmm. Small chance of a water infection afterwards or a urine infection because we put a camera in there. That's about it, really. A little bit of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Right, a but, friend of mine had this done. She was, she was, she, it was wonderful. It, it, yeah. It changed everything for her. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So it's a brilliant, and in some ways maybe it should be a first step, or it's a brilliant kind of for women who want something doing but don't want or don't have the time in their life at that moment to have a major operation. Mm-hmm. And so it's fantastic for that. You have one, and it, sometimes it works a bit. We'll do a top-up hopefully six weeks later, but with NHS waiting time, normally longer. Mm. Uh, And then um, if it fails after that, then we'll say it's a failed treatment. But as you say, for the women it works for, it is fab because Mm -hmm. it's really, really low risk. You know, for ladies who might maybe be carers for their elderly husbands who've got dementia or whatever, and actually they don't want to be in hospital or have a long recovery time. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic for women who are younger, who have younger children, again, who haven't got that time to sort of, recuperate from an operation again it's a great option but what you gain in very low risk you lose in terms of its success rate so the success rate based on nice guidance is around 30 to 70 percent so for every 10 women i've got that between three and seven will be happy it's quite a range isn't it yeah isn't it our numbers probably in my unit's probably around six in ten are happy but equally you don't lose a lot by giving it a go. Yeah. You know, um, which is what quite a few of my ladies who go for it 
tend to view it as. Because if it doesn't work, you can still have the operations. It doesn't mean you can't have something yeah. else. And that's the nice thing about it. And so and so still with stress incontinence, mm. there are, I think you said, three others, three surgeries in total, so two others. So well. two others. So there's three kind of surgery slash procedures. There's the bulking. Yes. And then the two operations now. So the first one is called a fascial sling. And it's basically when we make a cut in your tummy, similar to a cesarean section type scar, kind of around mm-hmm. your nickel line. It's about eight centimetres long. And then we go down to your tummy wall and we take a strip of tissue from your tummy wall. And then we go back underneath through the vagina and we tunnel it either side of your water pipe or your urethra. And the idea mm-hmm. is it acts like a bit of a hammock. And so whenever you laugh or cough, your water pipe or your urethra kind of press down on the, on the sling and it closes it off so you stay dry. Really good operation, um, especially since we started doing it with the tunneling because the risks are slightly lower. Tunneling. So we've got kind of, it's a bit like a big needle, like a very, right. very big chunky needle that okay. you kind of, you feed it behind your pelvic bone and okay. run it up either side of there in an empty Sorry, space. Sorry, it's me feel a bit funny, but okay. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Uh, and this is like using native tissue, isn't it? Yeah, so this is using not, your, nothing to do with exactly plastic mesh. No, yeah. it's all your own tissue, and it's all dissolvable stitches. So that's the yeah, really nice okay. thing about it is, is it's all you. There's nothing. Okay, you know, when the operation's over, you're not going to be left with any foreign bodies inside. Mm-hmm. The success rate is around ninety five percent, ninety percent. So it's really good. The nice again suggests that at five years that drops to around seventy five percent. The big risks with it, apart from your usual surgical risks of sort of infection, bleeding, Mm. that kind of thing, the specific ones to this are you can get a hernia where we've taken the strip of tissue in your tummy wall. So we put extra strong stitches to close it off, but that's still a, a chance. And then the other risk that people will often quote to you is you're more likely to have problems emptying your bladder after that operation. But I think that actually that information is a little bit skewed because the the data it's based on is when we used to do this operation in women who'd already had failed mesh tapes and failed other things so there were already a higher risk for having problems emptying the bladder afterwards Mm -hmm. so it's not the same data in women where it's just your first incontinence operation in our unit the number of women who go home with a catheter in for about a week is probably between one in five one in ten just because of swelling. And then the number of women who have to uh, empty the bladder themselves afterwards is a lot, lot lower. One in 20 for a couple of months and then it stops. Um, It's very rare you'd have lifelong problems unless we identified that on your bladder test beforehand and that would have then been part of our discussion at the time as to whether or not you were happy with that or you'd rather live with the leaking. Okay, but when you you say a success, Mm. how do you judge that? based on the woman's feeling of success. Okay. So her impression of improvement. So she probably okay. felt like she was much drier or very much better. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like, we're not saying, obviously we're not saying we're going to put women back to how they were before they had a baby. That is not a realistic expectation when you no, enter sadly. into something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Not possible. Because that's what we all want, right? Anytime, yeah. As soon as I have my prolapse, oh, yeah. I'm straight on there. Fix it. Put it back to where it was before. Thank you very much. But yeah. obviously it's not. Yeah. It never quite goes exactly back to how it was no. before, unfortunately. No. No. And then, and you were saying, so like five years later, the success rate lowers again. So it's got a lifespan. Yes. Is what we're saying. So right. 
And that's what I tell most of my ladies. Everyone laughs, but I say to them, especially for prolapse surgery, but equally in some ways for incontinence surgery, you know, it's a little bit like a facelift, but for the vagina. Eventually the wrinkles come back. <laughs> eventually the prolapse <laughs> or the incontinence comes back. Yeah. And, but it helps to get your head around it, to think about yeah. it in that way, you know, that we are yeah. stretchy and actually... As we get older, our skin gets more stretchy, but the rest of us does too on the inside. And that's yeah. kind of an easier way to get your head around it, I guess. Plus yeah, lighten so the mood. Yeah. Well, so it's, yeah. So it's an, a treatment or improvement or it's, yeah. not, it's, not a, it's not a permanent fix. No, but equally, you know, good incontinence operation will last 10, 20 years. So there's a good length of lifespan in there. Hmm. And then the, the other operation is a bit of a mouthful. It's called a laparoscopic colposuspension. So you can have this done, what we call open, where we make a big cut in your tummy, but most places now will offer it with keyhole surgery. That's what laparoscopic means. It just means keyhole surgery. And a colposuspension is basically where we put sort of a camera in through your belly button, a couple of sort of little centimetre cuts in your tummy, and then we will pull your bladder down from your kind of um, your pelvic bone and then we put permanent stitches either side of your bladder neck and lift mm-hmm. them to a ligament inside your pelvis and hitch it up and that kind of turns your vagina into um, a bit of a sling stopping your water pipe from leaking urine when you laugh or cough. Now the difference with this to the fascial sling is it does involve permanent stitches some places use dissolvable, but all the evidence is based on permanent. So, it, for example, in my unit, we use permanent, but we tell the women beforehand. Mm-hmm. The other thing to say is, as a mesh removal and kind of stitch complication centre, I think I've only ever seen one of these in the entire time we've been doing this, which is quite a long time, compared to all of the other mesh referrals we get. And that one stitch, we think, may have been put through the bladder at the time of surgery, rather than wiggled right. its way somewhere it shouldn't. Equally, if it does end up going in through the bladder, it's much easier to take out. You just cut it, pull, it slides out. It's not mm-hmm. the same as trying to dig mesh out of somebody. That's a bit like getting chewing gum out of hair in terms of how tricky it is. So, mm. And why would you have that or the other? What, what's the difference? Just depend on the Personal individual. choice. So the success rates are the same, 95% okay. and then 75%. Um, the risks for a colpo suspension or um, again it might work too well and you can't wee and then equally the other specific risk to that is it lifts the front wall of your vagina so if you've got a prolapse of mm. the front wall of your vagina it'll treat it at the same time right which is so that's <laughs> often why people might choose that one mm. but it might reveal the prolapse of the back wall of the vagina over time right because it pulls the front wall up and then in doing so it puts the bit, back wall under a bit of pressure so a prolapse of the back wall of the vagina is one of the risks of that operation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it, it requires a general anaesthetic and you have to be head down for a while. So you need a reasonably good kind of lung breathing function. Your chest needs to be pretty good. Um, otherwise, you might struggle to tolerate that. But to be honest with my ladies, once we get down to those two, as long as you're, you know, you've not got a reason like you're, you're too overweight for me to physically be able to do one operation over the other, or you've had a lot of operations in your tummy and there's a lot of scarring in there potentially, so I wouldn't want to go in and do the keyhole surgery one because it's just asking for trouble. I usually, it usually comes down to kind of what the woman feels she likes the idea of. And I say that a lot, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's little leaflets and things they have a read of and it's 
it's whatever takes your fancy. Because once you get down to those two, in terms of surgery and outcomes, they're sort of much of a muchness, Mm -hmm. certainly in our experience in our unit. Um, I'm slightly going off piste, but I'm just just trying to think, like for women who, you know, have stress incontinence, and thankfully that's not something that I experienced, but what am I trying to say? Like how bad would your stress incontinence have to be, do you think, to warrant surgery? Like... I guess, again, okay. it depends on people's no. lives, doesn't it? Go on. Yeah, exactly. This is why that's such a good question, Helen. And you're absolutely right, because that's what a lot of women come in saying, you know, well, oh, I put up with it for years and years because it wasn't that bad. And I thought I should just suck it up. And then suddenly it's much worse. Or they have grandchildren and they can't run after them in the park anymore. Mm. Or it's got so bad that they leap when they walk. Or they bend over to do the washing and they're picking up the washing basket and they're leaking. Mm. But equally... It is about you and your life. You know, if your big hobby is to run marathons or 10Ks and that's just the thing you like doing or your triathlons or whatever, then actually if you only leap when you're exercising, that's still a massive issue for you. Whereas, you know, if you are, I was going to say a couch potato like me, and you don't do, (laughs) embarrassingly, you don't do a lot of exercise, that's not such an issue, you know. But running after children and picking them up on that side might be a big thing. So... It is so much more these days, not about how much you leak or my perception of how bad it is. It's your perception of how bad it is that matters because you're the one going through it, not me. So you, we need to do this to help you be happy and improve your life. Um, And that's why it's a really good question. Good. I'm I'm all about the basic questions. (laughs) I love (laughs) it. it, It's good. Because we have to get it out there. Yeah. Actually, so we're going to get onto the other stuff as well, but just while we're on that theme as well, the other impression I had from doing all my Dr. Google stuff, which arguably I shouldn't have done, was that after you have these surgeries, you you still should live a, a restricted life in terms of how much stress you put on your body after that, knowing that you've had a surgery and it could be undone? Again, that's a really good question. And we were having this debate. See, you think that these are silly questions, but actually we debate stuff like this all the time and geek out over it. So (laughs) there's a brilliant team at Manchester Metropolitan University who are doing a lot of work in terms of women and uh, sports medicine and exercise and things. And we were talking about pelvic floor, weightlifting and Big, big, you know, lots of professors arguing mm-hmm. out. But our physio pointed out that actually, if, for example, you are really into lifting weights, but you do it properly and your personal trainer has taught you to do your pelvic floor exercise and when you're lifting your weights, actually, that's even better because you're really strengthening your pelvic floor compared to someone who's not doing any weightlifting and not doing any pelvic floor exercises. So, again, it's so dependent on what you do um and I say that to women afterwards for two months you're not supposed to lift anything heavy so nothing bigger than a bag of sugar you feel fine after two weeks it's not because you need to it's because it undoes the surgery whilst it's all healing but after that you know as long as you're not lifting the sofa to hoover underneath it on a regular basis or you know big bags of heavy sand around the garden and actually you make sure that you kind of you lift the same amount, but you do it in half sizes. So you do two trips instead of one trip with the big heavy bag. Then actually you're going to be fine. And if you want to do exercise, that's okay too. It's just about remembering to strengthen your pelvic floor when you're doing the exercise. So yeah. it's probably you don't need to live as much of a restricted lifestyle as I think people think. 
Mm-hmm. And you, um, when we spoke a while, but you you used a really a good word that I hadn't heard before, and I suppose it applies at both ends. But you talked about prehabilitation. So for women who are going into surgery, it's about the pelvic floor training and physio and things like that. And presumably after, yeah, absolutely. So our physios, especially, are really keen on prehab, and I say that to my ladies. So for example, if I've got someone who comes to clinic and she's got horrendous stress incontinence, and I can see it when she's on the couch. I know in my heart of hearts that video is probably not going to be enough. Um, But equally, and I say this to them, it doesn't matter because it's still really important and it makes any surgery we do more effective because they've made all the muscles down there as strong as possible before we do the surgery. It's a bit like training, really, before you do any big exercise. It's a similar kind of thing. And it also then means that after the surgery, you're in the perfect position to be able to, as soon as you feel able, start doing those pelvic floors again and then making everything down there as strong as possible whilst it's healing, which is even better. Dr Charlotte Marnie, a consultant urogynecologist from St Mary's Hospital in Manchester, who, in my opinion, talks a lot of sense. And as I mentioned at the start, there'll be a part two from that same interview next week. Uh, where we'll be talking about overactive bladder, surgeries for prolapse and how to get the most out of your appointment. Um, the other episode to flag is actually from last series, uh, which was pelvic floor surgery part one with the consultant colorectal surgeon, Julie Cornish, uh, which is about colorectal services where you might be referred if your symptoms affect the bowel. Important always to say that I am not a medical expert and this is not intended as medical advice. So please seek out your own professional help. You've been listening to Why Mums Don't Jump with me, Helen Ledwick. You can find me on socials at Why Mums Don't Jump or online at whymumsdontjump.com. The book is called Why Mums Don't Jump, Ending the Pelvic Floor Taboo and it's available to buy now. See you next week.